This is episode 41 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Raquel Garcia. She goes by Rocky. She is an acute care speech-language pathologist who graduated with her master's in communication disorders from Nova Southeastern University. She is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and a current SLPD candidate from Northwestern University, which I did not know about. That's so cool, Rocky. I'm so glad you're doing that. Uh, Her clinical interests include pediatric feeding swallowing disorders, instrumental assessments for swallowing, airway disorders, and velopharyngeal dysfunction. And I just might add that this episode is a little too close to home for me. Rocky's talking all about cleft palate and cleft lip, and this is really close to home for me because I went through some issues with my son with feeding him when he was an infant. So I know there's a lot of time where she just goes on and on and I honestly just couldn't respond at some points. I was just kind of had mom guilt that I didn't know some of these answers and I had, you know, this horrible guilt that I'm an SLP and a mom and I didn't know some of these things. So um, if you're wondering why it's just Rocky talking <laughs> for a long time, it's because I, I, yeah, I was, I was kind of sad. I was kind of upset during this episode, but um, you know, that's why I created this podcast, you guys. I just want to get this information out there. And, you know, Rocky's helped me so much. And I'm sure she probably is going to really regret offering her services even more to me and my son because she's incredible. And I'm so grateful for her to share all of this knowledge with you guys. And if you do hear a dog, yes, you will hear a dog barking throughout this episode. Sorry, we're not perfect. (laughs) And that's that. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. I learned so much and I hope you all did too. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Uh, Like I said, um, Rocky's just incredible. This this woman's brilliant, you guys. I think, and I say in the episode, do I tell her that she is someone we should all strive to be like in how she just takes the research and applies it so well to her patients. And I think that's, like I said, um, it's what we should all strive to be like. But um, I also must add that, and I must thank her, Um, she's been an incredible part of our medical SLP solution membership. Uh, She's a moderator for uh, NICU and PEDS and answering all sorts of feeding and swallowing questions there. So uh, she's been incredible. I couldn't do it without her. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Rocky. And if this, um, you know, this talk about cleft palate, cleft lip, uh, feeding difficulties in the NICU is your jam, then make sure you download the show notes. Uh, They're always at bit.ly, bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 041. And she, I think she put together like over like a hundred slides of some different presentations for you guys. So um, like I said, she's brilliant. So, so many, so many good slides, so many good references in the uh, show notes for this episode. So snag those right up if you would like. I totally got out of the habit of doing it, but I'm going to start doing it again 
is um, I'm going to read one of our iTunes reviews of the week. And you guys, we are so close to 500 iTunes reviews. That's totally bananas to me. So please, please, please go leave a review if you find this show helpful. That helps us out with rankings and visibility. And yeah, I would just love to hear from you. So please, please, please go leave a review. And the iTunes review of the week is written by Snow Sorrow. And it says, I'm currently a CFY in a small acute hospital and the amount of information you get from this podcast and its various guest experts is invaluable. Grad programs provide us with a foundation to learn about dysphagia and these podcasts serve to augment and further our learning and provides a great place to start our research, ask our questions, and learn from the best in the field. A huge thanks to Teresa and experts who have shared their incredible knowledge with us. Teresa has taken the topic of learning dysphagia to a whole new level. Thank you so much, Snow Sorrow. I think you totally put that into 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 good words. That's really what I'm trying to do here. You know, we've all had kind of the foundational knowledge in dysphagia, some more than others, and really just trying to expand on that because we've got there's so many cool things we can do in this field. And obviously, like this episode with Rocky talking about cleft palate and newborns is you know really a foreign concept to me, which shouldn't be because of my dealings with my son, but. Um, Again, so thank you to all of our guests. I don't think I thank you enough, so thank you, thank you to everyone that's contributed. This project has obviously become way bigger than anything I could have imagined, and I just kind of sit here and talk into my microphone, so it's not hard for me, but I know everyone that prepares these slideshows and these talks for me, and um, you know, thank you for contributing to our field. Um, your colleagues appreciate it, and most importantly, your patients are thoroughly benefiting from it. This week's episode is brought to you by the Medical SLP Solution Monthly Membership. What would it feel like if every week delivered right to you were resources that included videos and handouts about topics that affect the way we treat our patients every day? Well, that is exactly what the Medical SLP Solution Membership is. Every week, we send you a two- to three-page handout, including an intro, why, how, and instructions about topics chosen by the members, including dysphagia, aphasia, dysarthria, pediatric swallowing, voice, just to name a few. They are all blind peer-reviewed by university professors because, well, we don't know the research as well as they do. And the professors also usually add in some recommended readings if you want to dive further into that topic. I also record about a 10-minute video of that topic, so you do, if you don't want to waste trees or if you don't have time to read, just get your weekly 10-minute topic in on the way to work. Some of the topics that we've covered include how to do a cranial nerve assessment, lab values that the medical SLP should be aware of, how drugs can affect dysphagia, how to complete oral care, the neural control of swallowing, infant-driven feeding, so lots of great topics that we've already covered. And our members also have access to an exclusive private Facebook group or private forum where you can post anonymously if you would like, which is run by experts in various areas of the field ready to answer your difficult patient questions. And if you don't have time to check social media or check the forum, no sweat. Every Friday, I email a weekly roundup of the resources for the week, as well as links to all of the excellent questions and incredible responses by our moderators. So if you missed a really great discussion, you can click right to it. No more FOMO. That's fear missing out. So I provide all that to you every Friday. And this is all topped off with an exclusive monthly webinar for our community members. It also includes a Q&A session, and that will be accredited for ASHA CEUs starting in May. 
So if this sounds like something you're absolutely interested in, whether you're a complete newbie to the field, you're a CF on Dysphagia Island desperate for support, you're a mom of five kids with 20 years experience and no clue if you've kept up with the latest research, then head over to medslpsolution.com to join anytime. You get access to all of this for just $25 a month, but you may want to jump in soon because we are going to close down registration sometime in May to get ready for those upcoming CEU webinars. So don't delay, join the community now and feel free to ask away. And I just wanted to let you know that this month, during the month of May, we are covering the topic of esophageal disorders in the MedSLP Solution membership. So we've had a few different resources created by the wonderful Julie Huffman. Um, I know we all heard her a few previous episodes ago. She's so, so wonderful, but she's created some resources about, you know, what are some common signs and symptoms of esophageal disorders, uh, giving us definitions of esophageal disorders. I know we've all kind of seen the terms stricture, diverticulum, you know, what, what exactly do they mean? Some of us really don't know. Um, so she gives us all those definitions, and then she also gives us a list of resources of what tests we, we should be referring to. So instead of just saying, GI consult, you know, we really can help to steer our patients in a better direction, provide the GI doctors with a little more direction, and really help to get them the most specific tests to help them narrow down the diagnosis. So Julie's created all those resources for us this month, and to cap it all off, she is doing a one-hour webinar for ASHA CEUs on Tuesday, May 15th at 9 p.m., uh, so this is free to all MedSLP Solution members. So if you're interested in joining the membership and hearing this uh, one-hour webinar for ASH CEUs, you can sign up at medslpsolution.com. Oh, yes, I forgot to say it is recorded. So if you missed that live one-hour webinar on May 15th and you're a member of the membership, you can still play it back and get the ASH CEUs whenever a time is most convenient for you. Hello, Rocky. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to talk about this topic. Yeah, and, and thank you for everything that you do as far as sharing your knowledge of NICU and PEDS with, you know, my medical SLP solution group and also the newbies group. And so thank you for being kind of that source of that unicorn of where people never get to work. So <laughs> My pleasure. All right. So in the beginning, I kind of said a little bit about you. So tell everyone who you are and, and why you're here. Well, my name's Raquel Garcia, but everyone knows me by Rocky. And I'm a speech pathologist in Hollywood, Florida. And I'm also a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. All right. How long have you been working in NICU? I've been in NICU. We, I'm working, I work in a large hospital, so we work in NICU the pediatric floors, the PICU, and we also do some adults as well. Um, so I've been in NICU about six years. Was that always, was that your end goal? Was that your passion or did you kind of fall into it? <laughs> um, I've always liked pediatrics. Um, I typically, my heart is with pediatrics that um, have um, craniofacial anomalies and cleft palate. That's where my heart and my passion is. And NICU just kind of landed on my lap. So I'm very fortunate for that. Cool. All right. So let's get into it. So what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> so I work on our craniofacial and cleft palate team, which is a very, I'm very humble by that. I'm very fortunate to be on our team. I have three other great, amazing speech pathologists that work with me who have mentored me and helped me grow to become the speech pathologist I am today. So I'm very thankful for them. 
What we're going to be talking about today is feeding children, infants, toddlers, neonates with cleft palate and craniofacial anomalies. All right. So this is from a, a presentation that you did for, for what, Rocky? I did a presentation for the um, Florida Cleft Palate Association, and I did a presentation for the FLASHA, which is the Florida Association for Speech Language Pathologists. So the, the way this presentation came about is as a feeding specialist on the craniofacial and cleft palate team, we get a lot of infants that are referred to us from community hospitals in our area. Um, some hospitals are close to us and some are probably three, 400 miles away. And sometimes these children come to our team and they have some challenging feeding difficulties. And sometimes it's things that could have been addressed before, maybe the speech pathologists or the nurses or the doctors weren't aware that these opportunities were available for these babies or that the child might've been doing good in the beginning of their life and now are having difficulties feeding. So we recognized as a team there in the community, there was a, a need for education on how to feed children with infants with cleft palate and craniofacial anomalies. We had seen an increased report of failure to thrive newborns post discharge from the hospital and our team decided, you know, we needed to reach out and really try to educate um, our community speech pathologists, doctors, nurses, lactation specialists on how we can help these children feed successfully. Oh, that's great. So you, so I'm guessing, you know, obviously optimally you would want to get these kids right from the NICU. Um, but as you're saying, sometimes they, you know, fall through the cracks, they do get discharged and then you know, once they're home, their failure to thrive or they're not gaining weight at their peds appointments. Is right. that right? Exactly. Okay. Some don't even, even make it to the NICU. They're, they are in the hospital three days and they're feeding their 10 ml that they're supposed to be feeding with mom and then they're sent home. And then after a week, the baby's expectation to eat, eat more volume. So from 10 ml, maybe to 30 ml or 40 ml. And then that's where they start having that um, breakdown with their feeding. So things I can talk about today is just a little bit about what a cleft lip is, what a cleft palate is, how it occurs. And I can talk about a little bit of um, two different common craniofacial anomalies that can occur with cleft palate. So that way everyone is um, knowing that cleft palate is not something that is standalone. It could occur with many different other diagnoses. All right, that all sounds great. Okay. So a cleft lip can typically be um, determined on an, a 20-week ultrasound. So if a baby is seen at the 20-week ultrasound and they can see that there is a possibility of a cleft lip, typically the pediatrician, the obstetrician will refer them to the craniofacial team in their area. That way the family can get a prenatal assessment by the nurse um, practitioner or the nurse coordinator on the team, as well as the speech pathologist. At that time, we don't know if the baby has a cleft palate typically. You can just typically see the cleft lip. So the nurse practitioner and the nurse coordinator and the speech pathologist will typically review what can occur with a baby that has a cleft lip with feeding. So reviewing possibilities of adapted bottles, which I will be talking about later, um, talking about um, possibility of not being able to breastfeed, and just overall, what's the next steps for if the baby has to have surgery? Let me, um, let me back you up a little bit, because I know, like, I've gone through, you know, issues with my own son with feeding, and, 
um, you know, different genetic conditions, are they, is cleft lip or cleft, cleft palate always part of a specific genetic condition or can it happen in isolation? It can actually happen in isolation where they could okay. just be an isolated incident of cleft lip, isolated incident of cleft palate, and there's no genetic etiology. Um, most craniofacial teams, I'd say almost all of them, have a geneticist and a genetic counselor on their team that when a baby is born, they start um, providing that service to the family. Most cleft palate teams are certified by American Cleft Palate Association, which um, has guidelines on team dynamics, who should be on the team, who, what our roles are on team, and how we can service our families. All right. So you can have, a baby can have an incomplete cleft lip, which is a small indentation or notch of the vermilion. So it's very, it may not even be detected on the 20-week ultrasound because it's so minor. Typically, when the baby is born, the doctors, the pediatrician can determine that it is incomplete cleft lip. But if it is a very, very small indentation or notch of the vermilion, it may not be um, noticed until the baby's a little bit older. In those cases, when it's not noticed until the baby's older, the pediatrician will typically refer them to the plastic surgeon for maybe a lip anomaly, not knowing it's an incomplete cleft lip. And then the plastic surgeon can refer them to the craniofacial team. A baby can have a complete unilateral cleft lip, which is a, it's a one side. So unilateral is one side of the face deviation that can run from um, the lips to the nose. Typically, um, the palate and the maxillary is not affected. So it's just a line through going from the lip to the nose. And then bilateral cleft lip is both sides of the the infant's face um, where the maxilla is intact, but both sides of the lip are affected. And then moving forward to cleft lip, you can have cleft lip plus a cleft palate, meaning if you have a unilateral cleft lip, you can have a unilateral cleft palate, you can have a bilateral cleft lip plus a bilateral cleft palate, or you can have intact lip where there's no cleft and then have a cleft palate. So all sorts of different There's <laughs> different all different options. sorts of options that can happen. <laughs> okay. And the, the, the goal is that if a baby has a cleft palate, that it is detected while the baby's still in the nursery. Okay. That doesn't always happen. Okay. If there's a small cleft palate, that's maybe a cleft of a soft palate, very small. Sometimes the babies are sent home and it's not till the baby starts having um, feeding difficulties at home that the pediatrician notices um, the small cleft in the posterior part of the palate. And then okay. they're referred typically to craniofacial team. Can you explain what a submucosal cleft is? Yes, I can. So a submucosal cleft palate is characterized by a midline deficiency or a lack of muscular tissue or possibility that the muscles are in the incorrect positioning or alignment. Okay. It's not something that you can always see um, by looking inside the mouth. A submucous cleft palate can be diagnosed when the baby's an infant or when the child has grown and is now 14 years old and having speech difficulties. Okay. There's a variety of different times when a submucosal cleft palate can be diagnosed because it's not overt. You can't always see it when you look in the mouth. There are some um, diagnostic features that people do look for. It's a plastic surgeon, speech pathologist, dentist that might have a suspicion that there's a submucosal cleft palate. 
um, presence of a bifid uvula, which is when your uvula is split in two, um, a very thin strip of lining in the middle of the roof of the mouth where it might get a sheen of blue, which is called a zona pellucida, and then a notch in the palate. When you, when you feel inside the palate with your fingers using digital palpitation, you might find like a midline notch or like a meaty part where the hard palate meets the soft palate. That's not supposed to be there. And that could just be where the bulk of muscles are not aligning correctly. Um, so those are components of a semi-closed fluff palate. But with that being said, you can have a bifid uvula and not have a semi-closed fluff palate. A good yeah. friend of mine who is a speech pathologist has a bifid uvula and she does not have a semi-closed fluff Yeah, my son has, has the bifid uvula, so the okay. bifid Oh my gosh, bifid uvula. I know so, these are challenging. Words. I know. <laughs> Tongue twister this morning. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. So one doctor said they just assumed that he had the submucosal cleft to go with it. And I was like, I doing some research and I was like, I don't think they, you know, automatically go hand in hand. And I haven't had any other doctor suspect that they think he has a submucosal cleft. So anytime I hear it, I kind of, you know, I, I'm still curious if perhaps he does or if it'll manifest at some point. You know, like you said, when he's 14 years old, but for now, I'm not concerned about it. So, right. And it could, the reason I said 14 as an age that sometimes all of a sudden a child starts having um, speech difficulties at that age or feeding difficulties at that age is because at that age, or maybe a little bit earlier, depending on our, our children, it could be 12, 13, 14. That's when you're going through puberty, adenoid involution. So your adenoid tissues are shrinking. And then all of a sudden your palate doesn't have as much bulk to touch the postpharyngeal wall during communication and feeding and swallowing. Thus, signs and symptoms of a submucosal cleft palate may arise. Interesting. Um, and that can occur. And then that's tip sometimes um, the pediatrician will pick it up. Then they're sent to an ENT. ENT will say, you know what, I think you need to go to a craniofacial cleft palate team. And that is the typical avenue that we see with those older children. Okay, cool. Thanks for clarifying that Rocky. Yeah. No problem. And a little bit more about that, just to, about semiocosal cleft palate. When we have those older children that come in, a lot of times the parents will say, oh yeah, they were terrible feeders. They had the worst reflux. They had all this um, nasal regurgitation. I had to use all these different types of bottles and they always were poor weight. They always had poor weight gain. And then it, it turns out if we would have done a, if we look backwards, it, they probably are showing signs, symptoms of palate, um, dysfunction at that time. And what can be, you know, I guess what can be done at that point? I'm sure you'll probably get into the treatment and all that stuff in a little I'm, bit. But Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that at length. But, you know, at that point, when they're an infant, and if they're not showing any other signs of having um, disordered feeding, but just if it's um, attributed to reflux or milk, milk protein allergy, or just a colicky baby, the if the palate looks intact, pediatricians speech therapy that are not trained um, craniofacial specialists will not automatically jump to the submucosal cleft palate. I'm going to talk a little bit, if it's okay with you, about peer or band sequence. Yeah. Again, this is not genetics class, and this is not a craniofacial class. Um, I've been taught by probably the best craniofacial specialist in the country, and I'm humbled by um, their knowledge that they have shared with me. Um, I'm not an expert. I'm just a very passionate therapist, so I really if you're looking for the experts out there, please go to American Cleft Palate Association every year. Probably the best continuing education you will get in cleft palate feeding and cleft palate speech. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. 
So Pierre band sequence, often you'll see a baby with a cleft palate and you'll look, you're looking at them as a speech pathologist and they're like, wow, that baby has a really small chin and that baby has a really far, their tongue is sitting all the way in the back of their throat. We're not geneticists, but we can say maybe this baby has the signs symptoms of Pierre band sequence. So what those signs and symptoms are, if you're working in a specialty care nursery, if you're working in a mother baby unit, if you're working in the NICU, is the baby may have what we call micronathia, which is small mandible, which is their jaw. They might have retronathia, which is recessed mandible, meaning their mandible is small, but it could also be far back, so it's retracted. Um, this word I always have a hard time saying, so please excuse me, um, glossiotopsis. It's essentially where your tongue is has a far back carriage, so it it sits posteriorly and up and backwards. So when it's time for your palate to fuse at, at, at the um, correct age, when the palate is supposed to start fusing, the tongue is in way. So then a cleft palate occurs. And typically the baby will have a U-shaped cleft palate because the tongue is sitting so far back and high that when the palate is trying to fuse, the tongue is in the way. These babies many, many years ago if they had breathing problems because of the small jaw, the recessed jaw, and the high and back tongue, often years ago, and I'm talking many years ago, they ended up getting trached. Oh, wow. Because they didn't know, they had to manage their airway. And in order to manage their airway, they would just trach them. But with the advancement of medicine and um, excellent plastic surgeons out there that are really passionate about craniofacial care, now there's other things that we can do to try to manage the airway and try to help the baby be successful with feeding. So first thing we do is when we see these babies, if they're having breathing difficulties when they're laying on their back, so supine, if we put them on their side in sideline, if we put them on their belly and prone, does the breathing improve? If we see that the breathing's improved, then the plastic surgeon, the ear, nose, and throat doctor, the otolaryngologist, and the medical team can start making the decisions is this a baby that's safe to go home with these position strategies? Meaning, is the baby safe to go home um, always being kept inside lying or always be kept in prone? That's a, decision, that's a medical decision. As speech pathologists, that's not really something that we're going to say, hey, mommy, this is what you should do. But as a medical team, you know, we can all talk about what's going to benefit the baby and what's going to help the baby. Obviously, I care most about feeding, so I'm always championing, like, let the baby eat, but breathing always comes first. Yeah. So if, it's, if the baby is still having breathing difficulties or the doctors do not feel comfortable with the baby in the position changes and the position strategy changes, they might do a surgery called the mandibular distraction. It's a surgery that can happen when the baby's in the NICU. It can happen when the baby is sent home and then the baby's having breathing problems at home and they send them back. And that happens often in our units. And essentially what they do is... Um, they put pins through the mandible and they bring it forward. Okay. So you'll see the baby with um, wires on both sides of their jaw. And you might be like, oh, wow, this baby's not going to be able to feed because they look like they're in pain. But babies are, our babies are the strongest babies I know. I will tell you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they will fight through it. And if they're feeding well before the surgery, typically we can get them feeding successfully after um, Kel Mabry out of um, Connecticut wrote a really good article in 2016 
about pediatric feeding and infants with pure band sequence. So anyone that is a research nerd like I am, please mm -hmm. look up that article because it's excellent. And it really tells you that, you know, really look at the child as a whole and say, as a feeding specialist, don't get scared by them having this mandibular destruction. Think about how can we help the baby feed successfully? Is it position changing during feeding? Is it changing the adaptive bottle? Is it feeding them more frequently? And those are things we'll talk about later. I don't want to jump the gun, but this is things as a speech pathologist, our goal is to help the baby feed successfully and um, thrive. I'm going to talk a little bit about 22Q before I go into feeding children with cleft palate. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. So 22Q, 22Q 11.2 deletion syndrome is another common area you'll see on a cleft palate team, a craniofacial team, or in many hospitals, they have a 22Q team. Oh, wow. um, 22Q 11.2 can also be known as velocardiofacial syndrome, DeGeorge syndrome, um, calocardiofacial syndrome, autosomal dominant opitz syndrome, and many other syndromes that are out there. But the collective researchers that are, that are out there looking at this syndrome are now calling it 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. Um, Dr. Adrian Bayless out of Nationwide Children's Hospital has a great um, program in her facility that she is the director of, and she's a great champion for these children. And I am very thankful for always watching her American Club Pod Association because I've learned so much from her and her team on how to work with these children, specifically with feeding. So 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome is a neurogenetic condition. Um, it's a micro deletion of the long arm of 22Q. And often it happens and occurs in one in every 4,000 births. So Compared to cleft palate, which occurs in like one in every 2,000 births, roughly, um, 22Q can occur in one every, in every 4,000 births. Characteristics of 22Q can be congenital heart disease. They can or cannot have a cleft palate. Sometimes these children, um, their palate looks intact and they end up having a submucosal cleft, or they do not have any cleft at all, but they have a ton of um, feeding difficulties, which I'll talk about. Um, as they mature, children with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome can have velopharyngeal dysfunction, which is a communication and resonance disorder. Um, hypotonia is a very prominent characteristic of the, are these children. Dysmorphic facial features. Um, some of the research um, discusses uh, about their intellect, intellectual abilities, which can be variable. And most of the research support supports that these children have moderate to severe feeding difficulties. The reason I'm talking a little bit about 22Q11.2 today is that these children often get referred to um, feeding clinics and craniofacial clinics for failure to thrive, and they haven't been diagnosed yet. Okay. So it's just really important to look at the baby as a whole, and is this baby fitting some of these characteristics? And if they are, and if we're the first person seeing them on a medical team as a speech pathologist, maybe we need to refer them to genetics. So with these 22Q babies, there's many different reasons and theories of why they're having difficulties feeding. Um, there's a bottom to top theory that they start by having a lot of belly issues. And because of the belly issues, that directly impacts how they peel feed, the quality of their peel feeding, and their efficiency of the PO feeding. 
So quality of PO feeding is, do they like to eat? Is it enjoyable for them? And efficiency of PO feeding is, can they eat successfully, um, maintain the bolus in their mouth and finish within 25 to 30 minutes? So just to clarify the two. So belly issues that these babies might occur is like chronic constipation, just like you and I. If you're not pooping, you're not gonna feel good. Babies are the same, they just can't tell us. Um, esophageal dysmotility, delayed gastric emptying, um, reflux, esophageal atresia, which we would know about pretty early on if they did, um, and hernias of those nature. Then with these babies, with 22Q11 babies, there's often theories that there's a top bottom, top to bottom issue. So that these babies have airway anomalies that are causing the quality of their PO feeding and the efficiency of their PO feeding to be poor. Um, laryngomalacia, which is characterized in the literature as floppy airway. That's how a lot of um, pathologists and um, ENTs refer it as. Um, Subglottic stenosis, pharyngeal hypotonia, a glottic web, a TE fistula, laryngeal cleft, um, vocal cord paralysis. Those are just some um, atypical airway issues that they may have. Doesn't mean they will always have this, um, but pharyngeal hypotonia is a big one that is not always um, automatically diagnosed. I don't know that I've ever heard that term before. Pharyngeal hypotonia is, is this, you know, just hyp hypotonia in your body. Um, so if you have, if your baby's hypotonic yeah. and doesn't have the most tone and they're kind of like a floppy baby, think about their pharynx and how they're going to be swallowing. Do you have any questions for me about the 22Q babies? No, no, this is, this okay. is excellent, Rocky. Thank you so much for sharing all of this super detailed info. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like, I have a son with these feeding issues and genetic condition, but I don't work with the kids at all. So I, you know, I feel I have this like horrible mom guilt that I'm like missing all these things, but then, no, you know, no. I work with adults and I'm like, oh my gosh, I should know this stuff. So it's so fascinating to know like how vast our field, you know, really is and that I guess there is so, so many correlations between the babies and the adults. We think it's two, you know, foreign worlds, but. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes back to knowing um, anatomy and physiology. Yeah, yeah. And if you know good anatomy, physiology, and you have a good rationale for what you're working on, meaning getting imaging on the baby if they need it. So completing a modified barium swallow study, completing a fees on an infant, which is done. Baylor has great literature out on that right now. 100% um, support it because if we don't know what the physiologic deficit is on the baby, then we can't really address it. Oftentimes, it's feeding therapy that is the first person that says, hey, there's an issue with the baby feeding. And that's how they get sent to genetics and craniofacial teams. So as speech pathologists really empower our role and really try to refer out as necessary. Have you guys, do you do fees? Have you started a fees? We, um, we got our new, we had to get new equipment because we had to get um, infant size scopes. Yep. And we finally got that. Um, we have two great champions. One is our PICU doc, one is our NICU neonatologist. Um, and we're just identifying children right now to start it. So we're very excited. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We've been doing it in adults for years and we're just excited to bring it to our that's kids. That's great. Are you going to be doing all ages like NICU through peds or? Right. Our, our goal is to start in NICU and in our pediatric cardiac units and then bridge off from there. Wow. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. We're excited. It's, you know, it, and it really, you know, it, for, as a feeding therapist, we have to advocate for these babies. Absolutely. And they can't tell us that 
maybe they're aspirating in the middle of the feeding. And if we do a modified barium swallow study, which I support 100%, I believe in modifieds as well, I can only really see the baby feed for maybe upwards of six minutes, if I'm lucky, if I have a great radiologist. Um, and this way, if I do a feed, I can see an entire feeding. Yeah. And I can see them if, and I can see a baby breastfeed if they don't have a cleft palate. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm so fascinated with that, that with fees during breastfeeding, that I think it does just the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I would 100% recommend anybody to go to the Baylor course um, that they just completed in February. They're doing another course in February, 2019. Oh, cool. Um, not just because it's talking about fees and I love fees, yeah. <laughs> but they're just such humble people and they're just so open to learning from all of us because they realize just because they're doing fees and in infants that there's other places doing interesting things as well with um, instrumentation and yeah. they're willing to collaborate and they're just amazing people. So hundred percent support so great. anyone that wants to go there. It's well worth it. Yeah. That's definitely on my, uh, my bucket list, my professional CEU bucket list. <laughs> oh yeah. You'll definitely appreciate it, especially having your son. You'll definitely yeah. Yeah. It. You know, it's like I have my son plus I do fees all day, every day. So combining exactly. the two, it's like, why am I not involved with this? <laughs> so. Exactly. So I really want to just talk a little bit about looking at your babies and knowing, do they have the correct anatomy? Okay. You want to look at, can they create a seal? Can they create suction and compression? And can they create a suck? So in order to create a seal, the baby has to have good lip closure around a nipple or the breast. If the baby has a cleft lip, then you would have to help with creating that seal, which I'll discuss in a little bit. Um, in order to create suction and compression of the nipple, your hard palate, your velum needs to create suction like a negative, negative pressure inside the mouth between the oral and nasal cavity. So if there's a hole in the mouth, a cleft palate, you're not able to do that. So again, your hard palate, I'm just repeating this because often therapists, lactation specialists who are amazing, they don't understand this concept that the hard palate, the soft palate creates this negative suction in the mouth to um, create the suction and the compression of the nipple. If you don't have intact palate, then you're likely not be able to do this. Okay. And then when a baby sucks, the hard palate and the soft palate creates that barrier between nose and mouth. Um, so the oral and the nasal cavity, the velum elevates and creates a tight seal between the nose and the mouth, allowing the baby to pull the milk from the breast, express the bolus from the bottle and propel the, um, the bolus back to start swallowing. A little bit, we were talking a little bit about cleft lips. And before I talk about um, kind of going through your babies and determining, do they have a good seal? Do they have a good suction? Do they have a good suck? Um, I would like to talk a little bit about nasal alveolar molding. Yeah. So do you know what nasal alveolar molding I is? I don't. Sir? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, I will tell you. It, um, nasal alveolar molding is typically used for our babies that have a cleft lip. And it is an orthodontic device that is in the mouth to help shape and improve the position of the nose and the lip. It is um, a tool used by our dentists and plastic surgeons. And it's essentially to assist the plastic surgeon with surgery planning. So that way the appliance, it looks like a retainer almost, is helping form a symmetric lip and nose. So that way when the surgeon goes to repair the lip, which is typically done at three months, three to six months, um, they get a better aesthetic outcome. Um, NAM, which is nasal alveolar molding, is typically started at the first week of life, 
and adjustments are made once a week at the dentist's office. Um, typically, there's a dentist that are on a craniofacial team or have craniofacial training and that are aware of how to um, complete NAM molding or NAM training. If there's a compliance issue, if there's transportation issues, if there's um, socioeconomic issues and the parents can't complete the NAM, um, it's not anything negative on the parent. They just can't be compliant with the program. It's, you know, it's, it's an option for parents. It's not always like they have to get it done. So just to review in case um, speech pathologists are not aware of it, because not every speech pathologist goes through a cleft lip, uh, cleft palate and craniofacial course. It's just typically an elective. Where I went to school, it was an elective. What about you? Yeah, it was an elective. All right, it's an elective. And I elected not to take it. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so, and often, you know, at, in graduate school, there's so many great electives. And at that time, who knows what they really want to do as speech pathologists. Right. So often right. you take an elective that might be geared towards something you're more interested in. So if you really like autism, you might do an autism elective. If you really like cognitive, disorder, cognitive disorders, you might do that. Um, if you really like medical SLP, you might do that type of elective. So craniofacial anomaly elective is not always taken, but I would 100% support therapists on if you're working in feeding, if you're working in speech in a private practice, then to take continuing ed on it because it's really going to help you practice. Yeah, I don't, and I don't think until I was a mom, you know, of my son, I don't think I realized how much it affects feeding. Oh, yeah. I think I think I just always thought, you know, that cleft palate just affected speech, and you know, you just have that altered speech. And I I never realized until I was trying to feed my own child <laughs> that how much it affects feeding. You know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I, like you said, I wish I knew more about this ahead of time. Exactly. So cleft lip, just to review again, is typically repaired at three to six months. A cleft palate um, is typically repaired between six, the latest 18 months. So we try to do it as early as possible. Um, the reason we want to do the cleft palate as early as possible, meaning six to six to 12 months, but six to 18 months is kind of pushing it, um, is because of language development. The babies are learning to babble. They're learning to make oral pressure phonemes like pa 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 ba ba ba. And when you have an unrepaired cleft palate, you can't make those sounds because you don't have a barrier between nose and mouth. Um, so typically around six, like our surgeons do it around six to eight months. We're very fortunate, um, provided there's no, they're medically cleared and the baby's medically stable. So what I typically do when I'm working with a family on bottle feeding that has a cleft lip only, I break it down for them so they can kind of see how the baby, what the baby should be doing and what the baby's doing. So we have to remember that the seal, the suction and the suck work all together. They're like holding hands throughout the feeding. And if one part of that uh, circle is not working, then we need to find out why. So in theory, a baby with a cleft lip can create a seal, but they might not be able to get the best seal on the bottle. So if they have a unilateral cleft lip, then mommy might have to use her fingers to help close the, um, not to help close the lip, but just to help promote that seal. And if the NAM is in place, that will help promote the seal. If it's only a baby with a cleft lip, meaning the palate's intact, they should have appropriate um, suction and suck. So they're able to get a good seal and pull the milk from the bottle. And typically they can use any type of bottle. They don't have to use an adapted feeder. If a baby just has a cleft lip and mommy wants to breastfeed, and this is a big thing because I'm all about breastfeeding. I'm not a lactation specialist, but I thrive to be one day, hopefully. Um, yeah. I support mommies 
that want to breastfeed. If you want to breastfeed, let's try. But I want you to be successful. If your baby has a cleft palate, we may not be successful. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But if your baby has a cleft lip, we can try and see if you can breastfeed. So again, the seal is just the problem at that point. The baby might have a cleft lip, meaning that the palate is intact and the mom will have to use some of her breast tissue to feel the lip to help create that labial seal. Um, again, mommy might have to use her fingers and kind of help the baby create that seal with its mouth. And if the enamel's in place, that kind of helps the, to create that seal because they have this bulky orthodontic appliances in place. Again, if it's just cleft lip again, and I'm, the reason I keep saying it over and over again is that I can't tell you how many babies are referred to us for failure to thrive that everyone knows that the baby has a cleft palate, but they're feeding with differently, like with an eyedropper because the baby's not feeding or they're feeding with a spoon or they're by using their fingers just to give them the milk because they don't know how to feed their baby. And this is in, in Florida meaning this is not in a third world country. This is with people that have access to um, craniofacial teams and access to the internet, and they're still having difficulties feeding their babies. So this is something that yeah. in our day and age is still happening. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, I consider myself well-educated mm -hmm. and I was just so frustrated with how to feed, you know, my own baby. I just did so much research and, you know, I, I eventually did go to one of the um, long feeder bottle nipple. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll talk about it then. Perfect. Um, so if a baby only has a cleft lip, they should be able to breastfeed. Um, the mom should really look for um, sounds of clicking or popping noises that the baby might be working very hard and not achieving an adequate seal. And then she might have to just reposition her fingers or help with the breast tissue to create that seal. A baby that has a cleft, now remember a baby can have a cleft lip plus a cleft palate. So now I'm going to start talking about babies that do have um, possibility of a cleft palate. If the baby has a cleft palate only, then they should be able to create a great seal with their mouth because their lip is intact. If their lip is not intact, then you have to, again, address um, helping the baby create lip closure with using your fingers or the NAM to help promote that labial seal. If a baby has a cleft palate, they're not going to be able to create that negative pressure and that suction to, and create that suck to get the bolus out because they have um, an unrepaired cleft palate. So essentially, um, how I was taught through um, many, many great mentors, if you have a hose and you poke a hole through the hose, you're not going to get good pressure to get the, the water out. Same idea with the baby. They're trying to feed. They're super hungry but they have an unrepaired cleft palate, so they're not able to get that negative pressure they're supposed to be. Um, so the nipple selection as a speech pathologist is that's when we start going to look at adaptive bottles, which I'll talk about in a minute. So we can try to do a bottle match that fits the baby's anatomy and their feeding difficult. Again, I'm all about breastfeeding, but if your baby has a cleft palate, um, I've been doing this about seven years. I've never seen a baby feed that had a cleft palate. Um, the Cleft Palate Foundation 2009 said, except in rare cases, a baby with cleft palate um, can breastfeed, but they typically cannot sustain nutrition hydration exclusively breastfeeding. So essentially, um, their seal, their suction, their sock is typically impaired that they're not able to um, pull the milk from the breast. So it's not that we're telling mommy, hey, you can't breastfeed. We'll support you in other ways.
So how we can support mom in the role of breastfeeding, because breastfeeding is so important to mommies. Like if they have it on their mind that I am going to breastfeed, they will do everything in their power to breastfeed. And I support those moms a hundred percent. But at the same time, I want to make sure that baby and the mom feels successful because feeling defeated as a mom that you can't feed your baby is probably the worst feeling imaginable. Yep, it is. Um, <laughs> and as a speech pathologist, I can't say I know what you're going through because it's not my baby that you're holding. So uh, my role is to help mom feel successful and ultimately help the baby be successful. So things that we can do to help mom um, still breastfeed and um, give her baby her milk when the baby has a cleft palate is support her on pumping. Pumping is not easy when you're not able to put the baby to breast. So really going over different pumping strategies that are going to fit the mom's needs. Um, doing skin to skin, bonding with the baby that helps with milk production, and then working on non-nutritive stimulation to the breast. So having mommy pump um, all her milk out, put the baby to breast, and let the baby go to town on the breast, even though this is after the baby fed or, you know, if the baby's on an off time feeding time to let the baby go to town on breast, like he was on the pacifier. So they have that bonding time together. It's so important that um, it's not always that we're looking at can mommy feed the baby through the breast. There's so many other avenues that we can do to support her. So as a feeding specialist, you really have to, again, look at the baby and say, let me do my oral motor assessment. Do they have the correct anatomy and physiology to feed? Are they developmentally appropriate for feeding? So is this really related to the cleft palate that they're having feeding difficulties? Or is there another issue going on? Do they have maybe some underlying airway issues? Do they have some underlying um, prematurity issues that are not, that are affecting the feeding and maybe not really the cleft palate's fault? And is the baby stable respiratory wise, medically wise? And is the baby a risk for aspiration? So far I'm talking about just getting the baby to eat, they may feed successfully and look, and you know, you can get them to eat anything you want, but are they aspirating the whole time? So you want to, when you're considering risk for aspiration with the baby, you can't make a baby do a chin tuck or a head turn typically. <laughs> so you want to really look at positioning, flow rate, and do they have any anatomical differences outside of the cleft palate? So mid-face hypoplasia, um, tracheosophageal fistulas, laryngomalacia, and vocal cord anomalies, such as paralysis, paresis, uh, webbing, things of that nature. And I'm going to be using like generic terms for nipples before we get to the adaptive bottles. If anyone has questions, please email me directly. But these are just generic terms because I'm not endorsing any bottles. A slow flow bottle is typically a one whole nipple. Um, it's a smaller, the baby will typically get smaller amount of milk from the bottle. And this type of bottle is good for, not a bottle, I'm sorry, this type of nipple is good for babies that have decreased bolus control, um, might have some spillage when they're feeding, and it helps babies improve their swallow-breathe coordination because the milk is going slower into their mouth. This type of nipple, a slow-flow nipple, does not work for a baby with a cleft palate because that baby has to create that seal, the suction, um, compression of the nipple to pull the milk, and they won't be able to with this bottle. A standard flow nipple, the baby, it's typically a two-hole nipple. It could be called stage one or stage two nipple, a level two nipple, things like that are more synonymous to it. Um, it's a larger bolus size, 
Um, typically, the baby has um, good oral control, more experienced PO feeder, and they have good suck, suck swallow breathing synchrony. So that means that you're not having to pace the baby. Um, the baby has a beautiful suck swallow breathing coordination and not showing any signs of airway distress. Again, this type of nipple does not fit a baby with cleft palate. The reason I'm really breaking this down is because so many times babies come to our team and they're like, oh, the hospital gave us this nipple, yeah. slow flow, and said, oh, just poke a hole in it and they will eat better. Yes. Or <laughs> just, you know, cut the sides off and they'll feed better because that's how we feed babies a cleft palate, but that's not how we do it. We have to really know what's out there so we can support our babies. A cross-cut nipple um, is also called a Y-cut, a serial cut, uh, X-cut. Um, those nipples are typically faster flow nipples, um, are made for babies that maybe are on thickened feeds for reflux or dysphagia. And that way they can actually, it's a faster flow nipple that can have serial pour through it. Um, again, you need that good seal, that suction and compression and it's not made for a baby with cleft palate. So now I'll talk a little bit about the adaptive feeders. The adaptive feeders, um, when I first started seven years ago, which is not a long time at all, the star feeding was the Haberman, which is called the specialty needs feeder. Um, that was the bottle that everybody was using. So I'm gonna start with that bottle and then move forward on the other bottles that are out there. The specialty needs feeder um, is specifically designed for babies with cleft palate. It's a variable flow rate um, bottle that can be adjusted according to the baby's suck, um, uh, baby's oral motor skills and suck coordination, meaning that it has a slow flow, a middle flow, and a fast flow. So if you were to look at the specialty needs feeder, um, it has three lines, and the shortest line is slow flow, the medium is middle, and the fast is the longest line. Um, we went to do an education series at a community hospital in our area, and we were talking about this with the nurses who've been doing this 30 years, who love their babies and do their best for their babies, and they never knew what the lines meant. Yeah. <laughs> and that's essentially, it's not their fault. Yeah. They just didn't know. Yeah. And they said, oh, we just thought it meant we had to turn it around and make the milk come out. So, you know, showing them that this is what the lines meant helped them understand that the different flow rates for the baby. Yeah. What you do is you align the nipple, um, the line that you want toward the baby's nose, and then you actually squeeze the nipple when the baby is sucking. And you follow the baby's suck rhythm, so that way when they're sucking, you squeeze, and you're not flooding them and overpowering them with milk because you want to make sure they're actively sucking. Um, don't squeeze the nipple if the baby's taking a rest break. Feedback from this nipple um, that I hear from parents, some parents love it but it does have different parts that you have to put together. Um, the different parts include the chamber. Um, it's like a little disc that comes with it. And then the squeezing nipple. Some parents don't like to feed their babies in public when they have this bottle. This is just anecdotal. This is not anything that's published. And when you ask them, they're like, well, my baby already looks different. And now I'm feeding with a different bottle and I have to hear a lot of different questions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just what parents say. Um, not every parent will tell you that. Now, this bottle for one bottle is about $25 to $29 per bottle. So if you have a family that has socioeconomic challenges or that this was a surprise to them and they need to order this bottle, this might be challenging for them to be able to use. 
So always keep in mind when you're recommending a bottle, does it fit the baby and does it fit the family? So can the family understand how to put the bottle together, how to order the bottle, and can they afford the bottle? And can they use the bottle correctly? Oh, and just go back to the specialty needs feeder. They can order it on Amazon and you can get it pretty quickly if you have Prime, yep. but not everybody has internet access. Um, and that's realistic. And even in Florida, not every family has internet access. So just keep that in mind as well. If your body has, if your hospital has them in their central supply or in their unit, um, please try to provide them some to your families. They can also go to clefline.org um, where the families can watch videos on how to put the bottles together, um, opportunities to order the bottles, things of that nature. The pigeon nipple is, it's made for babies with cleft palate. It's typically, it, if you look at it, um, it looks like a more traditional bottle. It doesn't have a long nipple like the specialty needs feeder does. Um, it, the babies, it works best for typically babies with a bilateral cleft palate because it has a, a wider, more fuller nipple. And it only is a fast flow rate nipple. So the baby will get a larger bolus size um, and it'll be faster for the baby. So the baby has to have good oral control and a good suck, swallow, breathe coordination. So because it's such a large, broad nipple, it fills, in theory, that it could fill a lot of the tissue in the mouth where the cleft is and helps the baby feed more successfully. This bottle used to be made many, many years ago with a yellow nipple on top. Do not get those anymore. There's a new company, Philip Respronics, that is creating this nipple with a clear nipple. So if you order it on Amazon, make sure you're getting the clear nipple. And it's about $23 per bottle. I'd never even heard of this one. And I thought I, yeah. I thought I found every bottle created on the internet. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the pigeon nipple um, has a little valve. It's like a little disc that um, also goes in it. But if you take this bottle out to your play groups, to gymboree, it looks like a typical bottle. Um, you do have to do a little bit of squeezing to help the baby, but the baby essentially tongue pumps to get the milk out of the bottle. So just keep in mind it's $23 per bottle, which is a little pricey for some families. Also, if you Google pigeon nipple, you might see a bottle that has a spoon attached to it. That's not the bottle I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about this, the clear nipple, not the yellow nipple bottle. <laughs> okay, the Cleft Lip Palette Nurser by Me Johnson. It's a squeezable bottle that you squeeze the actual bottle, not the nipple. Okay. So the specialty needs feeder, the Haberman, you squeeze the nipple to get the milk. This one, you squeeze the bottle to get the milk. It's made for children with cleft palate, and it has a long, narrow nipple. Um, again, it's a faster flow nipple. So the baby has to, could have, to have good oral control, um, and they have to be able to um, manage a large bolus size. So again, their suck-swallow coordination has to be within functional limits to use this type of nipple. You squeeze the bottle when the baby's sucking. So again, you have to follow the baby's suck rhythm and make sure that they're able to manage the flow rate. And for a set of six, um, it's about $16. You can get them on Amazon or through um, Infimo. However, sometimes the bottles, from my experience, can get a little, like after a couple washes, they kind of start breaking down a little bit. So just keep them, that in mind. Me and the nipples get a little stretched and things of that nature. Okay. And that's just anecdotal. Okay. So the Dr. Brown specialty feeder, um, as feeding therapists, we all know what Dr. Brown's is. Um, Dr. Brown's is just a regular bottle company that's out there in the market. 
and they decided to start addressing feeding problems with children that had cleft palate. So their bottle, which is a Dr. Brown specialty feeder, looks like their um, Dr. Brown's bottle. The only difference is they have a little uh, blue disc that is placed into the nipple that allows the baby to tongue pump to get the milk out. Um, you don't have to squeeze anything with this nipple. Um, the baby uses its own anatomy and physiology. And that way the baby can um, try to express the milk using its tongue and then suck correctly. The um, positive with this bottle is you can change the nipples using their different nipple sets. So if the baby has a disordered suck coordination and you think they need a preemie nipple or an ultra preemie nipple, you can use those nipples with this bottle. If they're like super um, feeding champions or if they need to be on cereal for some reason, um, you can change it to a higher flow nipple, like a level three or a level four or their um, white cut nipple. Socialization part of it, a lot of the parents go, oh, I use this with my daughter. I have tons of them. Or I know how to use this bottle. I feel very comfortable with it. Maybe because it's a name brand, maybe because it's the way it looks, but this is just things that we hear from the families. Um, we do provide this in our hospital in our central supply unit. Um, just like we supply the other bottles, we give parents a choice. We don't endorse one bottle over the other. We just let the parents um, decide which one they think works best with their baby, and we help them with that decision as well. So for this bottle, you can get two for about $10, and typically on Amazon is where you would get them. So the Dr. Brown specialty feeder, um, the pigeon, the cleft palate nurser by me, Johnson, and the specialty needs feeder, if you go on to cleftline.org, there's all the, there's videos for moms, for speech pathologists, for doctors on how to use them, how to feed your baby using them, and where to purchase them. Awesome. So moving forward, the primary thing you want to ask yourself when you're working with a baby is, how are you going to help this baby feed successfully? We can't fix every baby, and I'm humble enough to know that every baby I work with is not going to walk out of there being a feeding rock star. Mm -hmm. But at least we can try to see what's how to make them successful in the small parts. So we want to ask ourselves, is the feeding related to their anatomy, their respiratory status, their cardiac status? Is it prematurity? Is it GI related? Is there something neurological going on? And is it just developmental issues that they need more maturity for? If you ever have come in contact with a baby and you don't know how to address their feeding difficulties and it's cleft or craniofacial related, uh, please reach out to your neighborhood craniofacial team if you don't know where the closest craniofacial team is in your area, you can go to acpa-cpf.org and they have a list of all the teams in the country. Awesome. Thanks, Rocky. You're welcome. This is so wonderful. I wish I knew you two and a half years ago. <laughs> well, I can help you now. I know. I'll oh, help your baby. Do. I know. I know. It's, it's just crazy that we do, you know, like I said, I have so much mom guilt, but also SLP I feel like I should have known this stuff, but just thank you so much for going into all this. And there is so many ways that we as speech pathologists can help these babies and help these moms cope with these issues. You know, I just thought I was kind of up a creek without a paddle because my son was feeding, he was gaining weight, but I knew it wasn't. We were just at like the bare, you know, 3% growth chart, you know, so it was like, we were making progress, but I knew that it wasn't right. Probably spent like a thousand dollars on Amazon ordering every bottle I could find. So, oh, yeah. yeah, so it's yeah. It, 
thank you for sharing this information because I think this is so useful for any, you know, even NICU SLP or PEDS SLP just to know that this stuff is out there and that there are craniofacial teams that can help with this stuff. So, and you know, we hear that all the time too, like a mom will say, and mom will come to a visit or mom will come even in the NICU and be like, here are all the bottles I want to use. How can we use them? And we got to just take a step back and say, before we start using every bottle that's out there, which I applaud you for trying to get your baby to feed hundred percent, we need to take a step back and say, what is our baby doing? Yeah. What can we just do to help him learn that feeding is happy time and positive experience. And that way when he feeds, he feels empowered. So using a bottle that fits your baby's anatomy and physiology, going back to the anatomy physiology soapbox, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's really, it's really gonna help the baby learn how to feed developmentally appropriate. Um, when I first started on the craniofacial team, my passion was really working with children that had velopharyngeal dysfunction and resonance disorders. And then over the years, it just transitioned to me being the feeding person that I just love feeding so much. Um, Cause you can really see how um, helping a mom learn how to f- help their baby feed correctly, how that changes every, how mom feels, how the baby's doing, the stress levels. I mean, there's just a, a different dynamic that I never knew in grad school that could happen. Completely. I, I mean, I really, I barely worked for, I think like the entire year, my son was, you know, after he was born until he was about one, I, you know, emotionally couldn't handle it because I was just dealing with all this stuff. But, and I also ended up just exclusively pumping for him too. So we couldn't, he, he would latch for like 45 minutes and only get like, you know, six ounces or something. So it was, right. yeah. So I ended up exclusively pumping. That's so great. You should give yourself a round of applause for that. Cause that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, how the hell did I survive? But right. you do what you can, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, you know, my passion, I guess now to tell these people, we have these tools available, you know, and exactly. somehow I didn't even know that they were available. Exactly. So. And yeah. as a feeding therapist, um, you're not an island alone. So if you really feel that it's something related to a baby's um, palate, palate integrity, craniofacial differences, pharyngeal hypotonia, refer out. I mean, you know, talk to their pediatrician, talk to their ENT, um, get them referred to a craniofacial team. As a speech pathologist, you can um, reach out to this craniofacial team, speak to the um, speech pathologist on the team. And we can try to help you um, either get them to a visit or get them to the appropriate providers. Yeah, the local craniofacial team that I was referred to, you know, said he was fine and they didn't, you know, need to see him at this time. However, they didn't have a speech pathologist on staff. And I think we have, you know, knowing that this really is within our wheelhouse, is there, I guess, any way for us to not force ourselves onto these teams, but I guess how do we show these teams that, having a speech pathologist on them can be so valuable for everyone. So going back to ACPA, American Cleft Palate Association, um, which is probably, if anyone's interested in craniofacial cleft palate, please um, look at that, look at that organization and join it, go to the conferences. It's like the best thing on earth. It's like Disneyland for me. It's the best. Um, Speech pathology is such a big component of any craniofacial team, cleft palate team. And, Um, There's guidelines according to ACPA and ACPA does not endorse, but designate teams that are cleft palate craniofacial centers. So it's pretty, you want to make sure that you're going through teams that are on or that are endorsed or accredited by ACPA because speech pathology is typically the number one person on the team um, next to plastics and ENT. Um, At the ACPA conference, you are, I would say for speech, 
it's it's all speech typically. It's speech, yeah. plastics, and ENT. So you want to make sure you go if you go to a team that does not have a speech pathologist. I would um, highly recommend to reach out to ACPA and see how you can either um, coordinate with a speech pathologist in your area that is not on the team if they don't have one, or reach out to a, a team that does have one. Okay. So is ACPA, like, you know, we're both board certified in swallowing. So if you go to that website, it lists all of us. Does ACPA have something like that? Like, are you accredited by ACPA or something like Um, that? There's no board certification in being a craniofacial cleft palate specialist. However, it's a subset part, subset skills that you have. It's a specialty area that we can directly impact a patient's quality of life. So having that specialized training through ACPA um, through special interest groups, PSIG-5, um, through ASHA, okay. um, can really help you get in that direction. Um, if you have okay. feeding questions, Scott Daly is an amazing feeding therapist that's out of Indiana. Um, if you have craniofacial questions or veal dysfunction questions, Dr. Bayless is an amazing um, speech pathologist in um, Nationwide Children's. Um, Chris Wilson's an excellent an excellent speech pathologist in Texas. I mean, you, you meet so many resources just going to this conference and being part of this organization that even if this is not your specialty area yet, but you're getting a lot of these children, this will help you move in that direction to learn um, how we can directly impact these children for a positive outcome. So a big part of what we do is reaching out to the community because a community therapist sees these children more than we do. So we want to make sure that um, as community therapists, we're empowering you to be that specialty feeder, to be that specialty um, communicator to help with their articulation. Um, but knowing what the standards and the practices are through ACPA is essential. Thank you so much, Rocky. This was so great. No, thank you. I'm very passionate about this topic, so sorry if I went on and on. <laughs> well, no, my gosh, no, it shows. And I, that's how we all should be, I think, about our patients and education and research and you know, putting, you know, best practice and into our patients. So thank you. I think you're such a role model for so many SLPs in our field. So I'm just humble (laughs) that I was able to have many opportunities and I had a great mentor, Kristen DeLuca um, and Tammy Braun, who really took me under their wing and showed me how craniofacial cleft palate um, can be so rewarding. So um, the biggest thing I would say is the takeaway from this is that we all have a role in helping these children. If you're on a cleft team or not, we all have to work together and, and help the baby. That's the center of our, our goal is to help the baby feed. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank Rocky. you. Have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.